Hello and welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching and learning and pivoting to digital for the whole TRU community. I'm your host, Brenna Clark Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tecumloops Te Suetmuk within the unceded traditional lands of Suetmukulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And today I'm thinking about accessibility from a whole bunch of different perspectives. Let's just get into it. I was in a meeting last week and someone mentioned that it seemed as though requests for accommodations through accessibility services were up. I think there might be a lot of reasons for that. I think oftentimes students will try to push how far they go, how long they go, without actually pursuing accommodations. And I suspect last semester, with its increased cognitive load and the challenges of learning remotely, I suspect a lot of students were pushed to access the resources that they needed to access. So that's one thing. Um, I also think, you know, teaching and learning online is such a different beast. And it's very likely that students who may have accommodations but not use them because they feel like they're managing okay in a traditional classroom came into barriers in the online learning that made that more difficult, perhaps. I'm thinking about it a lot because there's a population of students I have always been kind of slightly obsessed with, um, which is the population of students who need accommodations but aren't able to access it. So as you probably know, most institutions, most policies require that students have documentation of disability or ailment or confounding factor um, that gives them access to their accommodations. For many students, that work is done often when they're in the high school system, when they're minors. They first get an EAP or some sort of um, diagnosis that gives them access to services. But for students who don't get that as minors, which can happen for lots of reasons, right? A culture within the family, maybe, or um, just, you know, preferences around parenting choices. Um, could be cultural. Perhaps they weren't in the school system here and didn't have access to the same kind of resources. Um could be expense, right? Even though a lot of those tests are covered as minors, you know, some of that becomes out-of-pocket expenses. There's lots of reasons why students don't get the documentation they need. And those students, that population gets bigger as they age. If you don't recognize a learning disability or an additional need until you're an adult, well, suddenly the testing gets really expensive. I've heard of students with bills in the two or $3,000 range for getting their diagnosis that they need in order to access relevant services. This always makes me think about a population of students who may be hidden from us. Students who may need or wish they could pursue accommodations in their learning, 
that they don't have access because they don't have the diagnosis. And it's thinking about students in those scenarios that first made me interested in universal design for learning. Universal Design for Learning, you may well be familiar with. I'll put some links in the show notes. It's the idea that we design for accessibility up front and more students have access to our courses and they require fewer accommodations as a result. So this can be really simple things like posting our course content in multiple formats so that a student who is using a screen reader and a student who is not can access the same materials and get the same information out of it. Uh, This includes things like captioning our videos or providing transcripts for our podcasts so that students, even just with different learning preferences, can access the material in different kinds of ways. Universal design for learning is often sold to us in the way so many uh, good concepts that need to give themselves a sales pitch in the neoliberal university are sold to us, which is that it's a labor-saving device. We choose universal design for learning and we make our courses accessible up front and then we aren't required to do a lot of accommodation after the fact. Anybody who's taught a heavy teaching load knows that accommodations can be incredibly labor intensive. So that argument, you know, it makes a lot of sense. But it's also kind of gross, <laughs> right? Um, I think the real argument for universal design for learning is that we all need an equitable chance to work our way through course materials. And Things like whether or not a PDF is accessible or whether or not we read quickly enough to move through a multiple choice exam, those don't actually have anything to do with our capacity for learning the content. And so with Universal Design for Learning, we try to strip away those things that are barriers that have nothing to do with our course content. It's a perspective on teaching and learning I've always really respected. I'm not surprised to hear that more and more students are reaching out for help. In fact, I'm glad to know they are. I don't know about you, but it's been a hard time. I don't know if I've mentioned that on the podcast before. (laughs) And I can definitely see why if I was moving through learning materials and I knew there was a resource that I could access, even if I hadn't in the past, I might reach out for it. I think that the numbers should make us realize that we owe it to our students to try to minimize those barriers on our end as well. Luckily, I know some people who know an awful lot about that. I've invited Carol Sparks and Carolyn Tier to pop by today to talk to you about accessibility. They've been doing some incredible work looking at how to make open learning courses in particular more accessible, but they've been sharing that knowledge with the campus community as a whole. They had an introductory session at last year's Teaching Practices Colloquium, and they're giving another session on this idea this year. They're also in the process of building a WordPress resource where you can go to get more information about how to make your courses accessible. I won't speak for them, but I think they're going to give you a lot that you can think about to use in your own classroom, and things that you can think about even after we leave the fully online space. I'll leave it up to them to explain. 
here today with Carolyn Tier and Carol Sparks, who both work in open learning. And I've invited them here to talk about some work they've been doing around accessibility in particular. Um, we've been hearing some reports from faculty who see the rates of accommodation requests going way up in their courses. And I know anecdotally from talking to students who don't have documented issues that some of the accessibility needs are just not being met on campus. So I thought I'd invite Carolyn and Carol to come and chat with you about how to maybe maximize accessibility in your courses, what you can do to improve things. Um, Carolyn, Carol, can I ask you both to introduce yourselves, maybe say what you do and where people might have known you on campus in what I lovingly call the before times? Um, Carolyn, if you want to start. Okay, uh, I'm Carolyn Tier. I am the manager in learning technology and innovation. Um, and I've been in open learning now over almost 10 years, but um, working with our production teams primarily, and now I work with production and media teams, um, getting course content uh, ready in the LMS. So I've, I've dealt with people on campus related to that, but prior to that, I was uh, a sessional faculty in geography uh, on campus and did a bit of teaching there. So been around since at TRU since 2008. Right on, thank you. And Carol? Uh, hi, I'm Carol Sparks, and I'm an instructional designer uh, with Open Learning, uh, and I've been with TRU for the past three years. Uh, I work with faculty and, of course, our team in Open Learning to design online courses uh, so that they are interactive and engaging and the best they can be. You could probably have bumped into me, let's see, out for a walk over lunchtime to, um, you know, walk off the, the stress of uh, sitting at a computer all day. Um, but uh, yeah, really enjoy working with the faculty at TRU. Thank you for that. So um, the reason I wanted to talk to you both is you've been doing so much work around accessibility and given the context of open learning, accessibility in online courses. And I think there are some lessons there that campus faculty could take. I wonder if you might maybe start by talking to us about the, the genesis of the project you've been working on and maybe um, where you're at with it now. I know you're getting ready for a presentation at, at TPC in a couple of weeks, right? I moved to TRU from the University of Guelph in Ontario. And as you may or may not know, Ontario has uh, implemented legislation around accessibility. Uh, so while I was there for five years, uh, I learned a lot about uh, the issues with trying to make your materials accessible. It sounds like it's really straightforward, but you can have lots of uh, little bumps in the road. So I learned um, about some of the issues. Uh, they had an accessibility conference once a year, which was great. Uh, I could learn even more. And so when I came to British Columbia, accessibility wasn't legislated, um, but I could see all the potential. And uh, I realized that it's an opportunity to get ahead of the game here by uh, starting to think about accessibility here before it is legislated. So I uh, knew Carolyn had mentioned that she had helped with accessibility uh, issues for students before. So I went to her and said, would you like to collaborate on accessibility uh, research? And she said, <laughs> sure. 
Um, <laughs> again, so as, as Carol mentioned, uh, I've come at it, um, you know, being an instructor at TRU, I would have students come with their accommodation requests. Um, mostly it was a time-based issue um, for assessments. But then when I went into my uh, first role uh, at TRU, just working with course material and then as a supervisor of, of that area, um, we would get very specific uh, accommodation requests, which would require us to go back and really look at our material and assess it to see could we you know what did we have to do um we were doing things that are you know on the way to make it accessible but was that last step and it you know really having it come home again and again that if we were had things to fix we were trying to retrofit or go back in a course and that takes a lot longer to do than if you start to think about it as you develop and as you create your instructional materials so it's it's been a a journey to to understand how things get done it's a it's a huge area and it's sort of just academic curiosity there's some challenges like well how do you make this certain types of material accessible what are the best practices um what does the technology do or not do and uh so i i will admit to being a bit of a, a techie geek in that area so that's partly what drives my interest as well as to solve the problem and figure out how how do we move forward and how do we incorporate that into just building materials in the first place i i would just uh, tap into that one as well and uh, because you've talked about accommodation and accessibility uh, so i just wanted to make a note that uh, that they're slightly different and 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 you brought this home as well that accessibility is done before the course is offered or the, the file is given. An accommodation is often done after the course is designed. You know, by definition then, we can think about accessibility as being a more inclusive practice, right? Because if we're kind of planning for it up front, then the student doesn't have to be the one who kind of proactively goes out and seeks that accommodation, right? Ideally, the learning materials are already accessible for a wide range of learners. Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah. And and it's also beneficial for those who don't need the accommodation or not formally uh, recognized as needing accommodation. These are just really good practices for everybody in uh, in course design. Yeah, my favorite example of that, I, I've said this on the show before with regards to subtitles. Like I will totally cop to never having really thought much about subtitles until my son was born and he's not a good sleeper. And suddenly if something didn't have subtitles, I didn't watch it or participate in it. So, um, and that really made me realize just how circumscribed a need like that can make like your landscape, right? It's like, I only have access to these... Speak of the devil. Perfect. <laughs> there he is right there. Yeah. Uh, still not a great sleeper. <laughs> um, so yeah, that 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 idea that there are all kinds of needs that you know they're not documentable in in the kind of way they don't get students access to certain kinds of accommodated services, but that doesn't mean they're not tangible needs for for learners, especially as we're thinking about you know this remote learning experience that is so strange for everyone. Yes. Uh, 
And I would just add that, you know, when we look at accessibility, there is very much a continuum of practice. Um, you know, people often go to a very extreme, well, if I have to design my course for this particular instance. Um, it, but I think it's important to realize that some of the steps, which again, they provide a universality to your materials, they may not take it to the, you know, you may come up with a very specific accommodation that you might have to may have to do more work with but if you've done your groundwork it becomes a, a, a less of a challenge to to deal with that so um, we are looking at really broad principles mm. when we're talking about accessibility is there any this might be like a way to sort of 101 a question i don't know feel free to tell me it's not not a reasonable thing to ask but i wonder if there's in in your work you've done so far and particularly looking at the existing courses in open learning I, is there like low hanging fruit, you know, like things that people could could be doing right now that wouldn't take a lot of extra sort of effort or planning or thinking or knowledge, but make a difference for the accessibility yes. of the course? Oh, good. Yes. Okay, yay, that's my favorite. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and that's actually, I think, our focus yeah. now is to um, is to expand on our. We did a quick session at TPC teaching practices colloquium last year about basic online accessibility. And this year we want to build on that. Uh, but these are still uh, very much, we want to give you the, the, the easy steps that you can take when you've got, uh, for example, a Word document that you want to share with students. Here's a checklist of things to check for to, to help with your tables, images, videos, um, even text. Uh, so many little things that you can do that will just uh, make the difference and making your your document look look polished and function properly. So for those who, for example, might need a screen reader, but even for those who don't. Um, yeah, and if I was to pick the, the sort of number one thing um, that, that helps, again, in a very broad way, uh, that would be your document or heading. So whether that's in a print document or in a web uh, page, having a very logical structured heading style or heading level. So you have, you know, your top level one, and then you can tell that the, what's the next level under that. And so you're blocking out your information using headings. And uh, again, that just, that helps everybody. It just makes it really clear to any reader what the level of importance of the information is, when is it a subtopic, when is it not a subtopic. Um, and just by using, say, tools that you have either in Word or if you're directly adding things into Moodle, uh, it's all there, you can just quite quickly add structure to two documents and two to materials and just help a whole lot of people out. That is something that I have traditionally been really bad at because I always like, oh, I'll just bold the things that are headings yep. and not realizing that like that heading function in Word actually has function beyond making the text like yes. a little bit bigger, right? Yeah, there's actually coding going on behind the scenes um, that, um, yeah, that is literally putting some hidden code that basically says, hey, this is your heading level one and then heading level two. Um, and it's been lucky for, you know, if I, when I was doing assessing of open learning material, that part of the, the picture was actually, we, we, we've got that one sort of covered off just the way we work in developing and, and, and doing things. But um, 
to get our, our material up for students. But when I look at what comes into my teams mm -hmm. uh, to process, that's probably the number one thing that we, we, that's the first thing we look at. It's like what, when we look at the navigation in the document, is it clear? Because we base how we lay out on what <laughs> those headings are. Um, and again, when you don't have it, if you don't have an, a document that's used a clear structure, um, then, and you've just gone, Word makes it super easy. So this, this is important to note. It's very easy not to because Word makes it easy for you not to use those styles. Mm -hmm. And when you just go with the visual look, what can happen is say you start on page one and you're, you know, your first heading is really clear, but then you get to a, your, what's your next level down. You've styled it on page one, one way. And then if it's a longer document by page 10, it looks different. So though, even to a, a <laughs> to a reader, your, your visual clues have now changed and you're sort of like, oh, well, and, and you can start to feel that as you, as you read, if you read a document um, that, that has those inconsistencies, then the mess, your message starts to get a little muddled, right? Yeah. Because we use all sorts of clues to, to understand information presented to us. Uh, and that, I think that's really important when we're presenting sort of academic materials. It can go off the rails pretty fast. Well, it's always kind of fascinating to me that Word is this like actually pretty powerful little tool that we all use yeah. every single day. And so few of us have any understanding, particularly of document design, but there's like yeah. so much functionality there that is kind of yeah. left on the table because I don't know, what does proficiency in Word really mean, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's a huge thing, and it, it, it's ironically something I test my employees on when they come in the door. Mm. Um, I we we want good word skills, and everyone's like, "Yeah, I got it." And then I'll give them my test, and they're like, "Ooh, <laughs> ooh there's more to this than I thought." And there is there there it, it's is both an awesome tool because you can do so much, but the disadvantage of it is, is it can lead you astray and make things you know, in terms, especially when in the, in the framework of accessibility, it can get you off track pretty fast too, because it makes it a little too convenient to do certain things. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. If I can jump in there, uh, one of the things going on the heading styles, when you use the heading style feature in Word and you go to the reviewing tool, uh, it then creates a table of contents for you out of those headings. So it's just a marvelous tool if you've got a long document and you're trying to see the overview and how to navigate to something, you want to jump down to the conclusions or the results, uh, that's where to go is your, your reviewing tool. So, um, but it doesn't work if you don't put in the heading styles. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about documents too because I had the pleasure of helping a student last semester who was using a screen reader and a pleasure of working with the student because she was lovely but absolute nightmare of <laughs> I was so yeah. I mean I had no idea honestly and I since then I've been really encouraging faculty to just download read and write because we all have access yeah. to it and just like yeah. take a look at what your course materials sound like when they're read by the, the reading software because it's yeah. shocking um yeah. and one of the things that she pointed out is that she sees faculty uh, posting a lot of PDFs that are yep. basically completely unusable by her screen reader software. And she ends up having to, you know, go through uh, accessibility services and have them contact the instructor and then have the materials made accessible. Is there a way to create a PDF or to, or is there, you know, something to know about uploading documents and content to Moodle that faculty can do that would 
maybe cut out the middleman there? Um, there are definitely ways to make PDFs accessible. They've, um, depending on not, I'd have to check the reader version, but the, the pro version actually has quite a bit of um, uh, ability to convert non-accessible documents mm -hmm. to accessible. Um, again, it's the transition from where you start it to where you end it, looking at settings. What can happen, PDFs can come in sort of two different distinct flavors. Um, real old school PDFs, um, and if you just say go, you want a journal article and you go scan it off the photocopier, mm -hmm. what you basically have is a series of images on pages and that is not readable. You can also get PDFs that are actually quite readable uh, by a screen reader. And Adobe actually has a built-in reader within it. Mm -hmm. So you can go find out, again, what does your PDF sound like? It it just, it will go through. And if it if it's not readable, it just says, nothing on this page keep going <laughs> and you're like ooh, but there is stuff on this page um so it has um yeah the adobe product actually has quite a bit that can help get there but it, it's um you, you do have to do some some tweaking to and pay attention to make sure that you're sort of creating a readable object i've noticed in the new version of word there's now an export option that specifically mm -hmm. says it's exporting as an accessible pdf do you know if that is any good uh i haven't tried that mm -hmm. but i wouldn't be surprised if it if it you know again it, it's interesting carol talked about having legislation in ontario of course the united states has an, uh, uh, has had legislation as a nation for quite a mm -hmm. while and so because of that um materials that have been created in the states or that have or in the education industry there are often they are often accessible. Like I've even gone online um, into some journals. Mm -hmm. If you go through the library posting, you'll see that there's actually a button to read articles audibly oh, cool. within the library search engine or a particular journal. So again, we can, we're in a position where we're not reinventing the wheel. We're often trying to find out, um, oh, is there a new version? So that's a good example for journal articles where we've had like a scan given to us, which isn't accessible. It's like, hmm, is it up there now in a, in a readable format? And can we either point the student to that or, um, you know, get them a copy that's readable that way mm. so it's it's things change um so it's always good to keep looking to see what else other people have done <laughs> sorry i was going to say if um i could jump on that idea because we're talking about pdfs versus word some of the ideas or the um tools that we're we're providing the information that we're providing are we're using word as an example but then when you convert it into pdf or into something else then that much is done and is working well. So yep. the headings was one example, but um, yep. say hyperlinks would be another. So people put hyperlinks in sometimes, so it starts with HTTP colon slash slash www. And the screen reader, for example, would read all that out. And mm -hmm. even the sighted person would look at that and uh, it would be a large garbled mess sometimes of a URL. Most people seem to know, okay, I need to embed that URL into some words so that it doesn't show up like that. But the problem is a lot of people will um, embed it into the words, click here. Oh, yeah, I've been guilty of that in the past. Right? <laughs> so um, one thing that I learned at the uh, uh, accessibility conference 
was uh, somebody who uses a screen reader and has uh, most of their life said, I don't know if anybody realizes, but the screen reader, you can ask it to read out all the links on a page. So if they all read, click here, click here, click here, click here, it's not helpful in their ability to navigate and choose one of those as mm -hmm. the, the place that they want to go. So I think that's been a real eye-opener is what some of the screen readers um, can do. I mean, we don't use them on it. You know, we don't use them at all. So it's like another language. And, and just to sort of follow up on that, if you think of what, where the click here came from, it's really really, really early web mm -hmm. where we didn't have the idea even of a hyperlink and what did it do? Um, and I think that's what drove, okay, we need to say click here because people don't understand. Well, mm -hmm. we've moved well beyond that point technology wise. Um, people look at things and say, oh, it's a different color. I'm supposed to click that. Um, so, you know, but our wording hasn't matched <laughs> what what we can do these days uh and you know that it because the words could say anything and it's usually most useful if it actually says what it is that you're about to click because really a screen reader says might say link and then it reads the text so um if it's like an article it might be just the article title um or if it's a word version of something uh, you know we'll put in a title with the word if it's a word document word so that they just people would know what it is. And again, for someone who's not using a screen reader, that also provides useful information. Click here doesn't really, again, you, you have to read the surround mm -hmm. to understand what the here is. Mm -hmm. um, and just by embedding the actual description in those words, uh, it just gets you to the point a little faster. <laughs> well said. It sounds to me too, that a lot of this comes down to sort of thinking about how your materials are going to be used and mm -hmm. trying not to make assumptions about how they're going to be used. And, and I wonder when you folks are working with, for example, subject matter experts over in open learning, right? Um, are there things that you can tell them ahead of time that help to make the accessibility piece easier when it comes to development. I guess I'm trying to think of an, an analogy for when you're planning out your course in the early stages or gathering up your materials. If there are things you could be keeping in mind at that stage that would make the course more accessible as it develops. Uh, I think so. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is if you if you have videos in your course or want to put videos, are there transcripts to go with them? Or even if they're auto-generated transcripts, uh, do they make sense? <laughs> um, I've had the Simpsons translated by auto-translate. It was quite amusing. <laughs> um, but again, it it's not necessarily for someone who is, you know, you're not addressing visual impairment, you're addressing anyone who works better with text mm -hmm. uh, for that, whether it's a language barrier, it could be um, a learning um, style or disability. Um, there's a whole range of people who can benefit from having a text version of a video. In my case, I get bored because um, I can read a whole lot faster mm -hmm. than a video. And depending what, if it's not a demonstration video, it's just someone talking, then um, it will engage me more. So again, you're going to be putting all this effort into your course materials with your goal that it's you're, you're giving it to students because it's valuable, it will enhance their learning, help them understand the subject you're teaching. But if you haven't sort of considered that, you, you know, you could be putting a lot of effort in and people are just skipping by that because 
it, it isn't presented in a format that, that can help them. Um, or if say someone doesn't want to do be online all the time, a transcript just allows them to do it in an offline mode. So, yeah, it's been interesting to me to see a real shift in some of the stuff I'm reading about, you know, so-called generation Z learners and, and their expectation that video will just be captioned because they live in a media ecosystem where video is always captioned, right? I've got Mike yeah. in the room with me and he's watching something, but the captions are also on because they just seem to be on by default on yeah. Netflix, right? And it's great because <laughs> he's working on language acquisition. So, yeah. you know, bonus. Um, and and I, I think that that's something that uh, faculty are still catching up on. I think we've seen captions as kind of a, a nice to have or an accommodations or an accessibilities issue. I think increasingly for learners now they're just like an expectation like they're just they should be yeah. there right yeah and I, again it, it you know really when you we sort of start talking about this at the beginning is that you do have students who who do have you know they've gone through the process and they do actually have official accommodations but and we know that's increasing but there's also this very large group of students mm -hmm. who probably don't have that but who just benefit from these steps right mm -hmm. and uh and it is trying to you know if you again for my thought it, it does take so much time and effort to develop good quality material for your subject that you know you you do want to sort of optimize that time for yourself because yeah <laughs> you don't you don't have time in life really if, if <laughs> i could add into that i think that the captions one thing which is sort of seen as the extra mile because the the transcripts are more easily uh, created um but also including the length of time that a video is what the mm -hmm. title is um, so, you know, sometimes the links go dead and if they know what the title is or what it's about, then they can, they can search for it. And that's mm -hmm. if it's a third party video. And, uh, yeah, sometimes it's just watch this video and you don't know what it is, what it's about. Um, uh, but the links did. So, yeah. or, and I'll add to that who, who presented it? Because if you Google something, you'll get a whole range of, of material coming back at you. And it's like, well, what perspective was being presented with me? Uh, I, I've had to try and find replacement links or try and figure out what resource went down. And it was like, okay, uh, I wonder which, what, where were we, what was the intent that we were going for? And uh, which, which source would be the reputable source to replace it? Um, Another thing that uh, we can do to help our subject matter experts when they're preparing courses is to think about when they're using images as well as video, uh, what, what do they want the student to know? Sometimes they use images uh, from a textbook, for example. And if you've got a, a complex image, we call it, uh, such as, say, the digestive system or you know, the, the, the human vascular system, what can you talk to this picture about? Don't let it just be self-explanatory and include the um, description from the textbook. But take students through a few uh, through a few paths through your picture. If it's a flowchart, for example, continue the discussion. Don't just think that this image is going to cover it all. Um, mm. And one other thing around that, besides 
an alternative text, which of course is really hard to put in for human digestive system and get a full sense of what it is, mm-hmm. uh, uh, is uh, that we use a template for creating the modules. And I, I think that's something that instructors could do with, uh, with creating uh, assignments for their students is give them a template that already starts with headings in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they've got a sense of um, of the layout, and well, that's that's for our modules, but um, yeah, teaching them about how to build things accessibly, sharing with them so that they learn not just how to write a document, but how to write it so it's accessible for not only themselves, potential colleagues in the workplace, but their peers, even if they're sharing something on a discussion forum. Uh, it should be accessible. If you're sharing video, you should include a transcript with it. It's interesting because um, something I've learned a lot from working with both production and with the IDs is the idea of, well, I don't know. I think sometimes it comes down to a respect for student time, right? Like saying to students, okay, this video is going to take 20 minutes for you to watch. I'm going to approach that video differently than one that's only going to take two minutes, right? Maybe I have to make dinner for my kids in 15 minutes. So I'll watch the two minute video, make some notes and I'll come back and watch the 20 minute one after they've gone to bed. Right. Um, And just that sense that uh, you guys are so good at over in open learning of making it clear to students how to move through the material. That's something I've learned a lot. And I can see the, um, I can see the difference for a student navigating material on their own between sort of a well-designed OL course and, you know, oftentimes in the before pandemic times, our Moodle shells on campus side were really just repositories. It was just where you dumped a bunch of stuff. And that transition, I think, has been a big learning experience for instructors. And the the other thing that I'm thinking about, especially Carolyn, as you were talking about, like just a, a straightforward preference for text over video, yeah. for example, something that's been a recurring theme on the show the last few weeks is um, the idea of sort of getting our egos out of the way we deliver material to students. I had the experience a few weeks ago, somebody emailed me and they thanked me for always providing the transcripts for this show, because what they like to do is they listen to the show at double speed, and then they go back (laughs) and they look at the transcripts for the bits that interested them. And at first I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Thank you. Um, It's a little bit humbling, right? Like maybe I'm very boring. Um, But it's really important to recognize that everyone interacts with use that web 2.0 term content differently right and that it's okay people don't have to necessarily access the material the way you expect them to for them to get something out of it and as instructors we come up in the system where it's like everybody lectures and that's just what you do and you're the person with all the knowledge and you stand up here and you lecture and I think letting go of that and giving students control over how they move through the material that's a that's a that has been a big step in this pivot to digital that we don't really talk about, right? Yeah, it, it is um, pretty big. And, and, and you know, I guess it's, I think it's important to note that to me, accessibility is a journey. Mm. Like it doesn't like you switch, flip a switch and then, <laughs> oh yeah, tomorrow all my stuff is good. What, and, and what Carol and I presented on last year and what we're going to be presenting on this year at the TPC is really how getting get you familiar and to think about things and what you can try and do to improve it 
but realize that it's going to be an ongoing thing. We mm-hmm. are we were just talking about a course we're working on um, the other night, and you know we're trying to make make sure it's all accessible. And there's just things that oh I forgot to do that mm-hmm. oh you know, and and there's degrees which can help. So it's not a black and white thing. It is there is a lot of gray, mm-hmm. and and not see it as a daunting thing it's just to say okay here first steps what can i do to get my process going mm-hmm. um yes but it's it's really starting just to get you to think and and think about your students and think about yeah how are they accessing this what are my assumptions about it um you know another big thing right now f- when i look at, at assessing material is like what type of device are they looking mm-hmm. at i'm designing and 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 often looking on a dual screen you know desktop based machine and then the end users are using a phone and so that's a very different so that's you know things that are always going there well what what does it look like to the student how are they using it on the bus are they Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the end of the day i want them to know and get what they need out of the content but i have to sort of go to them Mm -hmm. and uh consider what yeah what what it is they are trying to do At a really baseline level, accessibility is sort of, I don't know, it's like the highest form of student-centered learning, right? We throw that phrase around yeah. a lot, but yeah. but when a course is truly accessible and students can navigate it the way they need to to meet their needs, that's, that is student-centered design. Yep. Absolutely. And I think uh, yep. the aspect of uh, that there's small things that they can do. We were, we're talking about how we might title our, uh, our presentation um, or our website that we're looking to create um, to, to hold a lot of this information is, you know, perhaps it's one step closer because we don't want it to appear too daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so asking questions, do you have a table? If you, okay, if you have a table, consider these things. Have you uh, put in a header row that gives the title of the columns because a screen reader will want to read what the head is header the title of that column is uh to indicate which cell it's referring to um but then so does your sighted reader like what is yeah. the column <laughs> right um have you put a title on the table or are you just saying this information is below right so if you mm-hmm. put a title on it uh then that helps to clarify what exactly this table is about we were looking at some resources because of course we're still learning about all this um, and it suggested putting a link at the top of the table saying skip this table because the screen reader, if it needs to go through all the cells and uh, describing them and everything that's in it, the option to skip the, um, the table altogether was there. But then mm-hmm. our question was, okay, but they still need the information for the table. Yeah. So then we were going to put it in an alternative format so that it was text and perhaps listed, right, according to the columns and the rows so that it was more readable. But then if you didn't have a title for your table, what would your link say when you're asking it to show a text format for the table? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot there's a lot out there and some might say, well, you know, there's lots of websites out there, but we've also found that they're full of lots of additional things and aspects and and other types of um of documents and files and concerns related to this and can get uh, difficult to find the key information that you're looking Mm -hmm. for just to make your document 
work better. I am looking forward to this resource that you guys are working on because it will make a lot of what we do um, a lot more straightforward for people. I think I'm really excited. We're uh, one of the, I think the screen reader element is an aspect that we're excited about learning more about as well, that a screen reader doesn't pick up color. So Mm. if you're using color as your distinguishing element, or you're saying Mm. this is highlighted in yellow, Mm. um, the screen reader doesn't pick that up. Uh, If you're asking them in their assignment, highlight all the verbs in green and highlight all the um, nouns in red, for example, that's beyond the color blindness of red and green all looking like gray, but the... um, the screen reader doesn't pick that up. So you need to have some sort of character or word that indicates what those colors mean in each of the places. Um, yeah, but who thought? Who would have known? No, well, that's exactly it, right? So many of these things are things that we can attend to, but we just don't know that we need to. Exactly. So I'm grateful that the two of you are out there doing the work and I will um, put a link in the show notes to the TPC session coming up so that folks can uh, check it out if they want more information. Great. Thank you. Thank you both so much for your time today. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for all of it, but I also think it's just going to be a really eye-opening discussion for folks to hear about the things they could be considering if they had only known. So that's it for episode 19 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. And in both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. Of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. Uh, And just a production note on today's episode... I've had some microphone issues this week. My beloved Yeti, my my best pal, <laughs> many hours of podcasting and many hours of recording ill-advised uh, demo tracks in my office. <laughs> and I think it might've given up the ghost. So I've been swapping between mics for this episode. I hope it hasn't been too distracting. I'll leave you today with a tiny teaching tip. Carolyn and Carol talked about small steps that you could take to make your course more accessible. I think in the spirit of the kind of reflective practice we've been encouraging on the show, I'm going to ask you as your tiny teaching tip this week to take a good hard look at your course right now and choose one thing you could do to make your course more accessible. And then I want you to do it. So do you have some videos that need captioning? Do you have some Word documents that need design and structure? Do you have some PDFs that aren't really PDFs? They're just kind of pictures of text. Whatever it is, pick one small thing, just like Carol was encouraging you to do, and start there. Make one choice to make your course more accessible. I encourage you to pick something that you're going to keep using You know, we talked last week about some persistent resources. Uh, Maybe this is a video you'll keep using even if we move into hybrid or face-to-face. Maybe this is an assignment that you've used before. Whatever it is, pick something that the work will really reward you because you'll keep using it into the future. And then if you're still feeling enthusiastic, maybe you could take the time to make a list of other things that you can do to make your course more accessible. 
It's something that you can work towards. Tiny bites, right? Just like Carol and Carolyn said. Thanks for joining us today. I'm grateful to be at a place where I can have this kind of discussion with faculty because I think it's so important. I'm grateful that you're here for it. Take care of yourselves. We'll talk soon.